Welcome to Murder Archives. This is episode five of series one, Fractured Silence, the death of Norma Rees McLeod. In the last episode, we looked into Norma's private life, as well as the life of the chief suspect of police, Norma's mother, Edith McLeod. In this episode, we're focusing on Norma's father and brother. I'm Emma Curtin. Join me as we ask, what kind of men were Norman and Rhys MacLeod, and what clues might their stories provide? As usual, we've added links in the episode description, and you can find more information on our website, murderarchives.com.au, including photos of Rhys and Norman. And if you want to email me about your own theories, please do so. Emma at murderarchives.com.au There'd been a lot of debate at the inquest into Norma's death about the MacLeod's apparent reluctance to talk to police. Both Constable MacDonald and Senior Detective Lee stated that Norman had told them he didn't want the police involved and wanted things kept as quiet as possible. Norman denied this. However, to me, it seems unlikely that both the constable and the detective would lie. If Norman didn't want the police involved, was it because he had something to hide? Or simply because he didn't want his family's private life to be the subject of gossip? After all, the MacLeods lived in a community known by some for its snobbery and judgmental attitudes. Norman was a self-professed gentleman and would no doubt have wanted to keep his social position without fear of scandal. Of course, wanting to keep their private life just that made it more difficult for the police, and for me, to peep behind the curtain. But without doubt, I believe it was the MacLeod's private life that held the key to Norma's death. The newspaper accounts that drew me into the MacLeod case gave very little insight into what kind of man Major Norman MacLeod was. He appeared to be a caring father with a belief in his daughter's strength and courage. Occasionally, his comments to the press gave a hint of self-importance. For example, he told the age that Norma may have been trying to get to his room, where he kept, quote, an old-fashioned pistol which had been used by Ned Kelly. This detail hardly seemed relevant to the attack on his daughter, but it added a certain dramatic flair. Whether this is even true is doubtful, particularly as no one in the surviving family has any knowledge of a Ned Kelly gun. Anyway, that's just a little aside. To find more about Norman, I needed to do some digging in the public records and national archives. Norman MacLeod was born on the 5th of November 1866 in Raglan, Western Victoria, about halfway between Ararat and Ballarat. One of eight children, four boys and four girls, his father died in 1879, which must have had an impact on the 12-year-old Norman. From what I learnt of him, Norman didn't seem particularly close to his mother or siblings. I thought it odd, for example, that on writing her will in 1913, Norman's mother, Elizabeth, appointed as executors her two sons, John, Norman's eldest brother, and William, who was younger than Norman, as well as her son-in-law, John Gomer David. But not Norman. Norman worked in a clerical capacity in the Department of Defence 
and was older than William. So why was he excluded? Did his mother distrust him or were they not close? More significantly, when Norma died, a number of Edith's relatives came to support her, but I couldn't find any record of Norman's family doing the same. The closeness that Edith's siblings showed were not mirrored by Norman's siblings. But just a reminder here, remember I found it difficult to track down relatives from Norman's side, so my impression may be slanted. The two families were connected by more than one marriage. Norman's oldest brother, John, had married Edith's oldest sister, Elizabeth Rees, in 1884. This obviously suggests that the MacLeod and Rees families were well known to each other, and this is presumably how Norman met Edith. Norman was then 18 and Edith 17. By all accounts, as I said in the last episode, Norman was infatuated with the elegant and pretty Edith from the outset. Norman had begun his education with promise, considered a smart, good lad at the age of 16. He'd been inspired to teach, following in the footsteps of his elder brother John. But his teaching career was not a success. Following a series of failed exams and only temporary postings, he was appointed junior assistant on probation in June 1887. His teaching record for the following year, however, includes the statement, quote, not an able teacher, but he seems willing. Norman resigned from teaching for the state in November 1888, although he did keep up his teacher registration. Maybe with a view to settling down, in November 1889, aged 23, Norman applied for a military clerkship in the Department of Defence at the Victorian headquarters. Norman had to have a medical as part of the application process, and this gives us some insight into his physical health. Doctor's note, 22nd of November, 1889. This man has a miserable constitution and weak limp. I do not consider that he would stand the confinement as a clerk for any lengthened period. He would always be away on sick leave. This was certainly not the glowing recommendation Norman might have hoped for. I'd later discover that Norman had what was thought to be rheumatic fever during the 1890s. This may have been a flare-up of a condition that he already had when the Department of Defence doctor examined him in 1889. Rheumatic fever is an inflammatory disease that sometimes develops after an infection, such as scarlet fever. The disease can affect the heart, skin brain, sometimes causing emotional instability, and joints. So Norman's weak limp may have been associated with this illness. Despite Norman's reported condition, however, Major General Alex Tulloch suggested he be appointed on certain conditions. Under the circumstances, it would be inadvisable to enlist this man, but I propose to keep him on as a temporary clerk until the establishment of four clerks is complete. The Secretary of Defence responded. The Minister desires that Mr MacLeod, now temporarily employed as a military clerk, should be re-examined medically in six months' time, and if then unable to pass, his services are to be discontinued. It is important that Mr MacLeod should clearly understand that his engagement is temporary only, subject to above condition. 
It's a wonder he was accepted at all, given the negativity surrounding his recruitment. But history tells us that at this time, there may have been a shortage of suitable candidates due to cuts in government spending. As a staff clerk, Norman signed an oath of allegiance to Queen Victoria for a period of five years. In December 1889, an approval note from the Department of Defence included the statement, salary not to exceed £90 per annum without quarters. This was lower than the salary of some of his counterparts. Was this because he was considered ill-equipped to perform his duties? And was this an echo of his failed teaching career? Anyway, Norman obviously passed his six-month examination as the next archive document is dated three years later when his salary was raised to £100 per year. Ultimately, Norman would stay in the Department of Defence for almost 40 years, reaching the rank of major. Photos from the family show Norman to be a slender man with dark receding hair and a thick Victorian moustache. You can see photos of Norman and the family on our website. One particular photo, taken around 1915, shows him in his officer's uniform. What's noticeable in this picture is that Norman had no award ribbons. His military career seems far from noteworthy. Promotion to major generally occurred after approximately 8-10 years of service, so the question remains why he failed to achieve a higher rank. To me, Norman seems a rather inept man who may well have been disappointed by his career path. Norman retired from service due to illness in 1928, just a year before his daughter's death, at the age of 62. Perhaps his early bout of rheumatic fever had continued to take its toll. As mentioned in the last episode, Norman had begged Edith to marry him and she'd agreed, believing that he was on his deathbed. Edith's niece Betty wrote, quote, Unfortunately, he got better. Just this tale told me something about Edith, it also revealed something about Norman. It suggested to me that he may have been manipulative and controlling, taking advantage of Edith's kind heart or perhaps lack of conviction. The impression I got from family members was that Norman could be very critical and there was some suggestion that his children felt they were never good enough. It became obvious that Edith's family didn't like Norman, or at the very least considered him eccentric. He'd get up at some ungodly hour of the morning and once he's up, he's in the front room banging away at the piano on some really loud march or something like that presumably, um, so that the family would then have to get up and get out and get on with it. Edith's niece Betty didn't pull any punches either. He really was peculiar. Always had some fad on hand, spiritualism or Highland Pipers or something. The Highland Pipes were no doubt celebrated in honour of his heritage. While Norman was born in Victoria, his parents were both Scottish migrants. Norman's eldest brother, John, was vice president of the Clan MacLeod Society of Australia. Norman's other fad, spiritualism, was extremely popular in the 1920s, particularly with war widows and grieving mothers desperate to connect with those lost in battle. The number of practitioners and charlatans grew in response. Norma herself visited a spiritualist psychic in Melbourne with her cousin Betty in the 1920s. 
Betty's daughter Jill remembered her mother's telling of Norma's fortune-telling experience. My mother was a young, ten years younger than Norma, so she would have been a, a child and Norma would have been a young adult. Um, and they're in, in the city in Cole's Book Arcade. And in one of the booths or one of the uh, rooms there was a fortune teller and it was advertised as a one at a time reading and Norma wanted to have her fortune told and um, so she went first and my mother waited outside. When Norma came out uh, she seemed upset. She bustled mum away and said it was a ridiculous waste of time and she wouldn't let mum go in. Uh, Mum said she remembered Norma was quite agitated and flustered, which in light of the later event, Mum liked to think, was because the fortune teller perhaps foresaw the lack of future for Norma. Norma refused to elaborate on the sitting, and uh, that was just Mum's interpretation of it many years later. Of course, we'll never know what was said, but at the very least, the story suggests that Norma, like her father, was initially open to the idea of spiritualism. Interestingly, several spiritualist scientists were also interested in electromagnetism and radioactivity, including X-rays, phenomena that would undoubtedly have seemed ghostly. Norman, too, was very interested in X-ray treatment and had a friend who used this new technique. It was, said a relative, just one of his many fads. But despite his eccentricities, Norman seemed to be an upstanding member of the Turak community, showing his commitment to its well-being. In 1921, for example, on behalf of local residents, Norman complained to the local council about an increase in tram fares. Was money an issue for the MacLeods, or was he simply looking out for the common man? Betty's memoirs indicate that Norman was certainly careful with his money. She wrote that he kept Edith very short of cash and she became an expert at making do. Norman's community spirit also appeared to go beyond Turak. Only a couple of months before Norma's death, a newspaper article revealed that Major MacLeod had hosted a gathering of the Victorian branch of the League of Nations Union at his home in Mandeville Crescent. This entity was first formed in Britain by liberal peace advocates immediately after the First World War to promote the creation of an organisation for securing world peace. In 1924, Norman had also become the president of a Veteran Sailors and Soldiers Association, created to build homes for veterans as part of the Soldier Settlement Programme. However, after only a year, Major MacLeod reported that the association would be disbanding. Our committee has arrived at the conclusion that the need did not exist at this juncture for the building of cottages for veterans. For this reason, and owing to minor difficulties, the plan has not been proceeded with. Was this just another failure for Norman, or am I being unkind? Norman was also a member of the Freemasons. In 1896, aged 29, he joined a lodge known as Australia Felix of Hiram, resigning three years later. While a family member told me that Norman had been fairly high up in the Freemasons, I couldn't find any evidence to confirm this, but he may well have been. From newspaper accounts, I also learnt that Norman played lawn bowls. He did, after all, live right next door to the Turak Bowls Club. I've no idea how good he was. I certainly couldn't find him listed among the championship notices reported in the papers, 
or how long he'd played. What I do know is that it was through this activity that Norman met Superintendent Walsh, officer in charge of the Criminal Investigation Branch, and the man who had declared to the press a personal commitment to solving the mystery of Norma's death. Did this friendship explain why Norman was not an obvious target of police attention, other than as a protector of his wife? And did this explain why police apparently never interviewed Norma's brother, Reese? When I first started investigating this case, as I've mentioned before, one of the most significant things about Reese for me was his apparent absence from the whole Norma story. Who was he and why did he seem so elusive? Reese Johnson MacLeod was born on the 23rd of April 1906 when his parents and six-year-old sister Norma were living in St Kilda. The family soon moved to Mandeville Crescent where Reese shared a bedroom with Norma, the room where she died. Educated at Caulfield Grammar where his sister would later teach, Reese left school aged 16 and began working for a fur company in the city, an occupation he would remain in for the rest of his working life. Fur was an extremely popular fashion item in the 1920s, particularly lavish fur trimmings around coat collars and cuffs. Rabbit skins were also popular for hats, and in 1929, the rabbit industry was reported to be the largest employer in Australia. I couldn't work out which fur company Reese worked for. There were more than a hundred in the city at the time. But only four were situated in Elizabeth Street, which was the only hint I had of his office location. At some point, Reese entered the Universal Training Service, attached to the artillery unit as a part-time conscript. This was a form of national service implemented in 1911. In reality, it meant up to 16 days a year of service, including several days in a training camp. Reese may have begun age 12 as a junior cadet before moving into the senior cadets, or he may have joined as an adult after completing school. While compulsory, Reese's service may have given him a connection to his father, who was also attached to the artillery unit in a clerical capacity. Reese could be introspective like his sister. He was certainly an avid reader, a passion he retained throughout his life. However, in his younger days, Reese was much more outgoing than Norma, particularly in his late teens and early twenties. He was known as a keen sportsman, playing football for his school as well as various amateur associations. One relative remembered him as a very popular man. He was athletic and a great tennis player. Reese mixed with the young socialites of the day. He would later recall a few of his favourite dancing spots, including the wrecks in the city and Carlisle's Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda, both hotspots in their day. Along with some of his friends, Reese took dancing lessons with Miss Montgomery in South Yarra. All the young blades learned the latest steps, foxtrot, waltz, one step, Almoda's dinner jacket, dreadful stiff shirt that kept bulging out, patent leather dancing pumps. Reese's name occasionally appeared in the society pages of Melbourne's newspapers, among the guest lists of numerous parties. When I think about Reese's social life, colourful images of a roaring 20s social world pop into my head, like some kind of Australian version of The Great Gatsby. Some of those he socialised with were school friends. 
he maintained at least one lasting friendship with a fellow Caulfield grammar student that would span more than 70 years. This was Geoffrey Froude, who would later play with the Melbourne Football Club. Jeff and Reese had become close friends at school, connected by a love of adventure rather than academic pursuits, and possibly difficult home lives, which I'll touch on in a later episode. I met with Jeff's daughter, who gave me more details about their friendship. Reese and Dad, she said, participated in just about everything that Melbourne had to offer. Sport, dancing, music, travel, work and social life with a variety, richness and freedom unique to the 1920s. On Friday afternoons, they would often do the block, a fashionable term for the practice of walking around Collins Street in the city to see and be seen. Reese was a slender, good-looking young man, about six foot or 182 centimetres tall, who obviously socialised with a large group of female companions. Capturing his recollections of youth when in his 80s, Reese wrote of strolling with Jeff to Central Park in Malvern and listening to the music of the Malvern Tramways Band. There always seemed to be plenty of girls amongst the strolls and sometimes a pick-up and a date could be managed. But not all of Reese's social activities ended happily. On the 17th of July 1929, only two months before his sister died, Reese was summoned before the St Kilda Civil Court of Petty Sessions for failing to stop at an accident. Defendant on 2nd June 1929 at St Kilda being driver of a motor car on Mitford Street where accident occurred did not stop and render such assistance as may be necessary and did not give his name, etc., and name, etc., of owner and identifying number of the car to person injured or to the police. According to the Paran Telegraph account of Rhesus misdemeanor, a Mr Robert Sang from Elwood had been driving about 1am on the morning of the 2nd of June when the car Reese was driving collided with his car at speed. Sang's car turned almost a complete circle and was thrown against the kerb. The car was badly damaged. Both cars had passengers, including, said the Telegraph, women folk, but luckily no one was hurt. A witness, Samuel Isaacson, also of Elwood, said he heard someone from the dicky seat in the car Reese was driving shout, Go for your life, dig! The car didn't stop. Nowhere are the names of Reese's passengers mentioned, but presumably they were some of those he regularly socialised with. Perhaps they were out for a joyride after a night of dancing. The car was not Reese's, but presumably one of his companions owned it and encouraged Reese to take it for a spin. It may well have belonged to Jeff Froude, who seemed to be the only one of Reese's friends at the time who could afford his own transport. His car was a huge American Packard, which Reese called a floating drawing room. Reese pleaded not guilty to the hit and run, stating that he'd done all he could do to avoid the accident. He also argued that when one of his friends had called out that the other car and passengers were all right, he saw no reason to stop. Reese, however, was found guilty, fined five pounds plus costs, equivalent to about four thousand dollars today and his licence was suspended for three months. It seems Reese was a bit of a thrill-seeker, possibly even a troublemaker. 
His best friend Jeff apparently used to bail him out of trouble quite often and was constantly rescuing him from encounters with much tougher blokes. Reese himself confirmed that he often leaned on his friend. He always seemed to have money and was usually good for a loan. So was Reese's apparently irresponsible behaviour the reason he was also the focus of anonymous letters to police after Norma's death? Yes, Edith was not the only target of public suspicion. Despite the fact that police didn't interview Reese, he had a criminal record, albeit for a minor offence, and was suspected by members of the community. Only three days after the police received the first Asmodeus letter, a short anonymous note landed on Superintendent Walsh's desk, the writer claiming to know something of the family. Little was said in the note, just a simple suggestion. It might be well to make inquiries of the employees of Mr Reese MacLeod. But what did that mean? Was the writer implying that Reese's employees would contradict his alibi? That he was in fact not at work at the time of Norma's death? Or was the suggestion that he had a temper and might be capable of lashing out? Something his employees might have witnessed? Or something else entirely? Adding to the fuel of suspicion against Reese was a second anonymous letter, arriving at police headquarters on the 15th of September from Turak. The letter, signed A.W. or A.M., it's not clear which, read as follows. Coming from church this morning, several prominent folk were discussing the McLeod affair, and it's the common idea here that the brother is the culprit, and my husband says the same is the opinion in the city club. Why worry the poor mother? She can't help you. A month later, another letter was sent with a clear tone of frustration. While this one was signed Justica, the handwriting and type of paper make it pretty clear this was the same writer. I cannot understand why the inquest on the late Miss MacLeod has been so long delayed. The brother and sister were having a domestic quarrel and when the mother pushed between the brother and the sister, he, the brother threw the flat iron over her shoulder and struck the sister on the head, felling her to the ground. He then began to realise what he had done and carried her to her room and laid her on the bed, returning to the kitchen. He seized a pair of his underpants, dampened them and laid them on his sister's head. Then he cleared off to the city. These were presented as the pure facts of the case and it was argued that Mrs MacLeod knew the truth and was screening her son. Obviously, the McLeod case was the topic of gossip and innuendo within Turak society, creating the opportunity between letters to develop numerous theories about the attack on Norma. You only have to look at the language in the two letters to see how ideas shifted from opinion to facts. However, beyond the insinuations, did the writer really know something? She was certainly adamant that Reese was the culprit, as evident in a statement in the letter margin. I'm not a clairvoyant, neither do I believe in such rot, but this statement is the truth and nothing but the truth. You will find it is, at the inquest. The writer was obviously angry that the police had failed to take up her suggestion of giving Reese the third degree, angry enough to write a second letter. But nothing in her letters explains how she knew it was Reese, if indeed she did know. And she was obviously not willing to identify herself and provide the clear evidence to police that she claimed might lead to Reese's arrest. Was her case based on the fact that the underpants found on Norma's head were her brother's? 
There were certainly insinuations in the press the pants were implicitly connected to a sexual motive. A pair of underpants, alleged to have belonged to her brother and to have been taken from her room, were wrapped around her head. The girl was not outraged. Remember, outrage here means rape. Or did the letter writer jump to the conclusion that if Reese could be so reckless as to be involved in a hit and run, which had been reported in the newspapers, then he might be capable of more sinister activities? Reckless is certainly an appropriate term. Reese's car conviction was not his only brush with the law. Five years after his first court appearance and Norma's death, Reese was again brought before a bench, this time in South Australia where he'd moved with his parents in 1932. It was the 1st of February 1934, and Rees, along with two friends, was found guilty of having unlawfully carried away liquor from the Royal Hotel, Kent Town. This time, Rees pleaded guilty, and the three men were fined £3 each. A total of five bottles of beer were taken, hardly a major crime spree, but it does speak to the nature of the offenders. Were they just irresponsible, mischievous larrikins? This seems a little too convenient an excuse. Reese was now 28 years old, not a teenager, and his accomplices were 25 and 29. More importantly, when seen in the context of his mother's commitment to signing the pledge against alcohol, not to mention the fact that his maternal aunt was a leader in the temperance union, Reese's theft of alcohol looks like a slap in his family's face. 1934 proved a bad year for Rees. Almost 10 months after his conviction for stealing beer, Rees was again in the papers, this time for suffering an injury after being thrown from a motorbike. His apparent passion for speed had got him into trouble again. Was Rees's behaviour a reaction to the trauma suffered by his sister's death or something deeper? While never mentioning Norma, Rees wrote about himself and his friends in their youth. We were an airy, fairy, feckless lot, blown by the latest trend this way and that, but in the main pretty harmless. But was he harmless? If Reese was guilty of manslaughter, as implicit in the Justica letter, was it because he was capable of losing control of his anger? Did Reese have a temper? Edith's niece Betty remembered spending family holidays with her cousins, including Reese. In her memoir, she admitted not being very keen on him. He was four years older and a bit of a bully. But this doesn't necessarily equate to violence in adulthood. Many children who are bullies grow into respectable and considerate adults. One source told me that Reese had a temper as an adult, especially when he'd had a few drinks. The impression this created for me was an angry young man whose inhibitions were loosened by alcohol. But am I reading too much into his actions? What do you think? Was it a coincidence that the underpants used as a compress for Norma's head were his? And why was Reese happy to write about his youth and capture his memories in later years, but fail to even mention his sister? We'll explore this a bit more in episode 7. We've now examined as much as we know about the lives of Norma and her immediate family. But what can we gather from all of this, and how does it help us get some resolution for Norma? Before we explore possible scenarios of what happened to Norma and why, I want first to look at the investigation itself. 
Who were the police involved and what was the environment they worked in like? Did they do the best job they could? Or was there an attempt to brush things under the carpet? Join me next time as we continue to unravel the life and death of Norma Rees McLeod. In the meantime, some more things to think about. Given all you now know about the family, who do you think is the culprit and why? Are my opinions too biased? Are there other ways of looking at the lives of family members? Have I missed anything? Remember, if you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime. Emma at murderarchives.com.au If you want to go deeper into the mystery of Norma's death, I've written a book. Without it, we wouldn't have this podcast. It's available to buy as a paperback or ebook online anywhere where you normally buy your books. If you can't find it, you'll find some information on our website, murderarchives.com.au. The book's called Fractured Silence, The Mysterious Death of Norma Rees MacLeod. Until then, here we go. Hi, I'm Amelia Ball, editor of Halliday Wine Companion magazine, and you can join me for our brand new Halliday podcast as we rummage through cellars and get the experts' knowledge you need to get the most out of your cellar. Taking a bottle of wine, putting it into a cool, dark place for a long time, crossing all your fingers and toes, and it coming out beautiful. Uh, we recently sold one for $300,000. Hear the Halliday Wine Companion podcast where you're listening now, or go to winecompanion.com.au.